Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 29, the annual condition inspection. So fall is here, and for many people that means flying is slowing down. Uh, it's time to conduct the annual condition inspection, perhaps start on some of those more intensive maintenance operations, uh, and maybe even do a couple of those winter modifications that you might have been putting off. We'll review the items that a typical inspection is going to cover. We'll go over best practices, and then we'll talk about some Sonic-specific items that are on our own checklist. I'm your host, Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. And joining me again, my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary is builder of Hound Dog, V powered tail dragger Sonics. He's a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's it going? Doing well. Had a nice sunny day here in Colorado, which was nice. Frosty early in the morning. Had to scrape the windshield on the car, but it warmed up fairly nice once the sun came up. Yeah, we've been having a little bit of cooler weather here, but uh, cooler is relative. It's not like Colorado cool. It's like 50 or 60 degrees cool. Yeah, but with that humidity, I'm sure it feels pretty chilly. It, it does, and it just it feels kind of miserable. I, I really miss Colorado weather. Um, around here, kind of gray, low skies. Once they kind of hang around, it just, it's good for nothing. So yeah. I, I envy uh, those clear, crisp Colorado winter days. Those are nice. We don't get them here. They're great flying days. Well, also joining is uh, John Gillis. John flies his YX from his eastern Colorado air park home. John is best known for his custom touches, including his speed cowl, his tilt-back canopy, and his toe brakes. John, uh, what have you been doing recently? Well, just... Uh doing the grind working every day and we uh you know i'm a little further south than gary and we had uh ifr with freezing mist this morning on the drive-in all the way to centennial so no flying for me but then on the drive home it was crystal clear and 50 degrees and absolutely gorgeous so that's colorado weather for you guys yeah and it's funny what 20 or 30 miles make you know you go over that little uh that little crest there and the weather's completely different on the north or south side yeah and since i live on the ridge i get both yeah you're kind of on the palmer divide so yeah actually we're at the summit of the palmer divide so nope everything's going pretty good um plane is uh tucked away in the hangar uh engine hoist is sitting in front of it and ready for my annual inspection all right well, uh, no guests tonight, so it's just going to be the three of us doing a roundtable discussion. And the goal here is to really get to the root of known problems, things that are on our list to, to watch, share some best practices, help people really kind of build their own annual inspection checklist. So I'll just start off by saying that uh, I will put my checklist that I use in the show notes. Uh, if you guys have something and you want to send them to me, I'll, I'll put those there as well. Um, my checklist is nothing special. It essentially follows the, the outline that is in Appendix D of FAR Part 43. And we'll, we'll, I guess we'll start there, and then we'll kind of move into specifics. But it's a good skeleton. If you don't have anything, if you want something a little bit more specific than going to the Appendix D, it's a place to start. So with that, I guess I'll just uh, I'll open this up by, you know, what exactly are the requirements 
that the FAA says. And as, as we all kind of know, um, every airplane needs to have an annual inspection of one flavor. If it's a certified airplane, it's an annual inspection. If it's an experimental, it's an annual condition inspection. We sort of get a little sloppy and imprecise in our language and just call it the annual or the annual inspection, when really what we're talking about is an EAB annual condition inspection. And the operating limits of your EAB airworthiness certificate will refer you back to Appendix D of FAR Part 43. And that's the same guidance that uh, certified aircraft have to use as well. And it's pretty generic. It says that uh, there are mandatory items and you need to ensure that all these things are uh, inspected and properly in a condition for safe flight. So digging into that uh, a little bit more specifically, Appendix D says you have to open and remove the inspection panels. You have to thoroughly clean the airplane. You inspect the airframe subsections, including all the systems and the electrical components. You go through the wheels, tires, brakes, your avionics, and then your big stuff like your engine and your prop. So that's all pretty much common sense items. When we start getting into the sonic specific items, there are some known areas that we have talked about on Sonic Flight before that are certainly on my checklist. And uh, there's other things that other builders have found that um, are probably deserve a, a, at least a, a once a year type of look. So with that kind of introduction, John, you mentioned that you're getting ready to do your annual. When you get ready to, to open everything up, just kind of describe your thought process. You know, not, not so much the, the detail items, but how do you get started and how do you prep for your annual inspection and then kind of dig into it? So just walk us through your mindset. Well, over the, um, the year, and actually my annual inspections tend to happen more than annual. When I do a, a major maintenance on the aircraft, I just go ahead and do a complete inspection and then sign it off. So it's it's really just a, it's, you know, I'll sign it off as, a, as an inspection. Um, but during oh, the year, you know, when I'm sitting there. Inspection. Pardon me? A progressive, yeah. yeah I mean, it's. Inspection. When, I, when I'm satisfied that the aircraft is airworthy and I've, I've inspected all the, the, the components that are required, I'll just sign it off. And it doesn't have to be on an annual basis. It can just be, it can be prior to that. It obviously can't be after. I can't be flying it if it's been over a year since I've done so. But uh, um, typically, if you look at my logbook, it's nine months, six months, literally three months if I've done some major maintenance or an upgrade. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, kind of like doing a 100-hour inspection on a regular GA airplane. You could do a 100-hour, or you could just do a full annual at the 100-hour point, satisfies the requirements, and then you get a year from that point going forward. With, uh, with an EAB, you could do an annual inspection every month if you wanted to. There's nothing that prevents you from doing it as often as you like. You have a large whiteboard that you write the date up so you can remember when you actually last did it. Well, no, it's in my logbook. So, you know, I'll, I'll log the time that I did the last one. Well, I guess that's helpful that you're younger than I and you can remember all that kind of stuff. If, you're, if you have an EAB aircraft that you built, you know when you last looked through it and signed it. If you have multiple ones like you, Gary, well, then maybe. And, and with your advanced age, I can understand. Yeah, sure it is. That makes a difference. So I use the whiteboard um, because I've kind of gotten bitten on that. I'm, I'm thinking, hey, I think I might be getting ready for an annual. And I go back and look at it, and I was like, oh, it's like tomorrow. 
And that's not a good place to be in. So I, I put the date on the whiteboard. Yeah, I mean, it's got things. I mean, you got other things too, all kinds of dates, you know. You got ELTs and, you know, your, your pedostatic or transponder checks, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. Last oil change. You need, I, I think you just need something big and large right in front of you that you can kind of glance when you walk in and kind of see how you're doing. And Gary, um, the, the Skyview has a maintenance interval timer, so you can program those items and have it uh, tell you when they're due. They do, but did you know they're not alarmed? I know, and I've been trying to get Dynon to change that. Yeah, there was a discussion about that recently. but My MGL Extremes do have the maintenance timers, and I use them, and they do yeah. alarm. I, I, used, my, I had that, too, on the MGL, too, the Extreme. At least it'd be flashing at you when you turned it on. You know, timers Yeah, it expired. says maintenance timer is expired. Yeah, so I, I use that. Dynon would do the same thing. That would be helpful. But that's, that's, not a, that's based on hours. It's not based on uh, a, a interval. Sure. Well, I don't know if there's actually a... Yeah, it probably is just time, hours. Yeah. yeah. So you set it like 50 hours or, or 25. If you want to change the oil every 25 hours, it'll tell you, hey, go change your oil. Yeah, that's where the MGL was. I'd have to go back and look at the uh, the Dyna, but it's probably the same format. Yeah. Okay, John. So when you get ready to do the inspection, how do you, how do you kick things off? What do well, you do? one thing I do is, especially on long cross countries where you get kind of tired and bored, um, I open up my iPhone and I have a notepad that I note things I want to check. Um, so I've, I've seen some sort of a cold cylinder or, um, you know, some sort of anomaly that I want to have, I want to do as part of the supplemental inspection. Uh, maybe a heavy wing. Uh, you know, it's not tracking right on the, on the landing or something like that. So that gets into my to-do list. Uh, for like the a next running squawk list, it's a running squawk list, yeah, exactly. And so when I get ready for my annual, which I'm coming up on right now, um, I'll pull that list up and start, you know, with adding that to my the typical checklist, which is what you've been re referencing um, on the annual inspection, which is the, the mandatory things you have to check. Uh, then I go through the Jabiru. I have a Jabiru engine. And Jabiru has an annual checklist, um, everything from torquing, inspections of uh, different uh, components of the engine, the, uh, the leak down test, uh, pulling all the spark plugs and, and validating their, uh, their condition, um, do an oil change, do a uh, send the oil off for analysis, um, uh, you know, checking all my electrical connections on the firewall forward. And then I work my way back through the aircraft. And then uh, and that includes, you know, removing every inspection plate, um, checking all of the moving parts. So the, you know, the aileron uh, uh, bell cranks, um, the flap housings, uh, the control systems, uh, cable conditions, um, any wiring from the, uh, you know, aft to back all the way to the tail. Um, I'll pull the, the wheels, um, repack the bearings, uh, clean and repack the bearings, check the, um, the brake pads, replace if necessary, usually not, uh, re, uh, bleed the brake, uh, lines because I have hydraulic bullet brakes. Um, and then up underneath the, the, the <clears throat> panel to look at all the, uh, the electric connections there and all the fittings and the fuel and all that. So it's basically just a really good pre-flight 
um, but you're taking everything apart to, to look at things. I, I did buy an endoscope. You know, I can snake things in and take a look. I did it for the first couple and then found that there's nothing to really see with that stuff. And so I just I ignore it. I mean, I use it if I have a, a specific problem I'm looking for. But other than that, it's uh, I don't find much value. Right. So, Gary, do you tend to go system by system or do you go kind of like nose to tail? Um, you know, I, I kind of follow the generalized checklist, but, you know, I, I think starting off with you know, when you talk about Appendix D, Part 43, I think that very first paragraph A is really the important part to start with. And that basically is, is getting your hands on the aircraft and cleaning it. You know, I think because you have to do that, it really slows you down at times. And as you're going around and trying to scrape all the muck and grime and grease off of this thing, you can actually start to notice things that you might not necessarily see before. Uh, you might see some right. chafing that's going on or some elongation or things along those lines. So I think it really is important to, to really thoroughly clean the aircraft. I know some of the A&Ps I see, they just kind of get the high pressure hose out there and wash it off. I'm not sure we get the same effect as those of us who may have had polished aircrafts and they have to go back and, you know, repolish that stuff and spend, you know, a couple of hours on the surfaces looking at all this stuff. Mm. Yeah. Well, Gary makes a good, really good point about cleaning. Um, you know, once you're having to get in there and kind of scrub things, you may have spilled that cup of coffee or something, you know, between the, uh, on your seat. And when you're down in there cleaning that up at the annual, to get all that gunk out, you're definitely going to be paying attention to other things that are going on down there. Yeah, what happens when you find a loose nut? Don't you kind of say, hmm, where did this come from? Well, it also helps you kind of build um, the things you want to investigate further. If you're cleaning the belly of you know grease and oil and you find a little bit of unknown liquid, you know, maybe that's coming out of a brake line that is chafing and there's a pinhole or something. You can just maybe kind of zero your attention on things that might come up when you're really kind of cleaning the exterior. And then, like you say, on the inside, it allows you to get in there and uh, get everything out of the way, which is important, first off, instead of trying to work around the seat and the cushions and seat pan. Just get in there and pull it all out, clean everything up, and that'll give you a chance to do a good overall assessment, kind of structure your work going forward. Yep, I agree. And then, you know, I, then I just kind of do, I, I, it goes more by systems. You know, if you look at 40, 43, you know, they'll talk about the general general appearance of the, of the skins and so forth. And that's just kind of like when you do a pre-fight. I mean, you kind of look for, you know, unexpected undulations or, you know, creases or cracks or, you know, do the wings still look straight, that kind of stuff. And you keep working your way down through there and you just keep going through the little checkoff thing. Some of the, the inspection items are fairly vague, so you do have to kind of come up with what you need to do specifically, like for your engine, whether it's a Jabru or, or a, a BW-based uh, engine. They're all a little bit differently. So you do kind of have to elaborate on that. But you could actually print off, I think, Appendix D and just go line by line. And some of the things you might put, you know, not applicable, like for, you know, envelope, gas bags, ballast tanks, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but you can keep going down there and, uh, you know, you can kind of much use that too as, as a general guideline and just elaborate from there if you needed to. The way I structured my, I guess it's, re it's really a, a worksheet more than a checklist. I, I start off with the, kind of the general items, some of the paperwork, placards, just make sure that that kind of stuff is good. I include the, the cleaning and prep and opening things up kind of in that general category. And then I go system by system, you know, 
prop, engine, fuselage, wings, tail, you know, landing gear, and kind of large components. So, and what I found is even working off of a checklist that, that tries to order itself in a logical flow, you're inevitably going to jump around a little bit. So it's got to be flexible enough to start kind of working on one area. For example, if you're checking the prop and you notice that there is an oil drip coming off the front of the engine and you kind of stop what you're doing and go look at the oil drip, you got to have something to kind of keep you all on track. And like, oh, I only got halfway through my prop. I only, I only looked at these aspects. I need to go back and finish, you know, what I was doing. So I find kind of a systems approach, even though I may not necessarily go line by line in order, eventually I'll go and I'll hit all the lines. So for me, that's a, a technique that I find that works well. Yeah, keep that pencil handy so you know where you left off. And I like to make notes. Um, if I'm looking at something and I notice uh, something that is interesting, maybe I'll make a note about it. A smudge over here that doesn't seem to make sense, or you know, maybe there's a shiny spot that might indicate a little bit of wear. Because there's times when you'll go back to that, you know, you'll notice something again and think, am I seeing a trend here? Well, I can't remember. It's been six months since I did the last inspection. You can go back to your records and, and go look it up and maybe uh, jog your memory. So I like to make notes right on my checklist to remind myself of what I'm seeing at the time. If we stay in generalities a little bit, when we talk about inspection, you know, some people just kind of, let's just say we, we open up an access panel or something and we look at something, we see it there. But does that mean we've really inspected it or not? You know, I, I, I have learned that you actually, most of the times, you actually have to put your hands on something and try to see if it twists, jiggles, joggles, rattles, you know, is loose or, or anything along those lines. You can't just, you know, just eyeball something and necessarily think that it meets the standard that you want to want to achieve. Well, Gary, you think with the WayX, we have that uh, the mixer tree. Um, in the back of our, our aircraft that has a, a ton of moving parts on it. And um, one of the things I noticed on one of my first annual inspection was one of the bolts that, that was uh, through a, a bearing was definitely not, not correct. And I wouldn't have noticed that just from visual. I actually took things apart, took those uh, cotter pins out, pulled the bolts out, bolts out and inspected them and found this wearing. Since then, that's part of my annual inspection, just take those bolts out, look at them, everything, look at the bearing, replace anything that might have been wearing, and then put it all back together again. So, Gary, I like your point about, you know, really kind of like thinking about what you're looking at. And the example that comes to mind is think back to being a student pilot, and you're doing the pre-flight, and you open up the oil door on the front of your Cessna 152, and you, you know to check the oil, so you're pretty good at that. You can pull the dipstick out and check to see how much oil is. And then you kind of have this vague notion that while you have the oil door open, you ought to look around in there and see if you can find any problems. But you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know, you don't know how to spot a problem. So you just sort of half-heartedly look in there, come to the conclusion that the engine is still in place, so it must be good. Yeah. That's not a real useful inspection. No, I mean, you really do have to kind of take your time and think about some things. But unfortunately, a lot of this stuff, you know, this kind of information isn't passed down genetically from our parents. You know, it's a learned and it's an ongoing process all the time. I mean, it's great if you got some other mechanics going to help you find things, or you got some other builders that have had the similar aircraft and engine that can kind of point you along the ways itself. But you know, you might see a streak that wouldn't mean anything to you, but you had somebody, a more experienced mechanic, come up, see that, and says, "Oh man, you got a real problem." Um, so you really have to kind of slow down. I mean, it could be something as simple as some exhaust staining. 
um, that doesn't look particularly ominous to start with. We know that's going to turn out to be a problem later on. Um, you know, fatigue cracks can be awfully, awfully small. Uh, I remember one time when I had my mall and relatively young, I mean, first, you know, it wasn't very old at all, but the mechanic showed me this tiny ass little crack um, that I probably would have just thought was some dirt on one of my, on my tailwheel and it required a whole tailwheel replacement. So it, it's a learn as you go, uh, but you certainly do have to slow down. When we talked about, you know, putting hands on things, not only for, you know, the, the big parts, you know, when you go around and do a pre-flight inspection, you know, many times I'll actually take the whole wing and try to move it up and down to see if I feel any clunking or looseness in there. You know, not just not just wiggling the ailerons, but grab the whole wing, especially in the Sonics, it's pretty easy to do. And make sure those through bolts through the wings and, and the fuselage, you know, aren't starting to elongate, long, elongate any. But look at your wiring, too. You know, those ignition coils that we all have and where they tap into the top of those little brass screws. Uh, it's amazing how often those things can get loose and they don't rotate or move and you can't see them. But when you actually put your hands on the wires where the screws go into the coils and they start to move, you, you certainly realize, man, I need to really get that thing snugged up, you know, change any star washers or anything else that you got to try to secure those things in place. Yeah, Charlie Radford uh, told a story on his Sonics that um, he grabbed the wingtip during an inspection and, and wiggled it and the wingtip moved like three inches up and down. And the and the bolt holes had elongated because of a sloppy initial fit, and so they had to go in and up drill and go to the next size AN bolt to hold the wings on. But that's the kind of thing. It, you you think at the time, ah, it's probably nothing. You know, I don't. Why would I have to check that? It's been doing fine this whole time. I would have known. But until you really slow down and make yourself go check these things, you may totally miss something that after you find it seems really obvious that you should have found it earlier. And you'd be amazed how many times you looked right at it and still didn't notice it. Right. You looked at it, but you didn't see it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, let me just run through. Uh, I'm going to use my checklist as a, just a basis for discussion. Um, so we talked about some of the general items, um, airworthiness and your all your paperwork, your weight and balance, and your registration. Um, it, it's worth every, uh, every annual just laying eyes on that information. Make sure there's not an expiration date coming now that you have to renew your registration. Uh, or they'll cancel your your end number. You know, you don't want to have that happen. Every three years, I believe it is. Yeah, every three years, right. The FAA sends out renewal notices, but for whatever reason, that may not make it to you. So make sure you take a look at the paperwork stuff. Do you guys ever go back and look on the FAA website uh, to check your registration and see what's actually showing on there and whether the airworthiness is still valid and all that kind of good stuff? I have in the past. I don't regularly do that. Yeah, it could still be worthwhile doing probably every once in a while. You never know what happens to some of this stuff. Next thing on my checklist is the prop. So I look at the the spinner, the bolts and nuts, make sure there's no you know obvious damage. Obviously, you're going to have to retorque the prop. You know, really, it needs to be done seasonally, but at the annual is one of those retorquing opportunities. And when you retorque it, that's a good chance to see the condition of the spinner, the, the hub area of the prop, make sure that there's... There's no um, fine wood dust or anything from some fretting coming out of the joint. There's no evidence of burning or any kind of crushing of the wood. The bolts are not all corroded and jammed up in the, in the prop holes. All those types of things. Something as simple as retarking it is a really excellent opportunity to give a detailed look around the hub area where the problems are likely to be. 
I think I recently saw a post on Sonic's Net that some guy was showing some bolts that actually had quite a bit of corrosion on them. Um, I'm not sure you could see all that necessarily on the outside. And I don't know if it's maybe worthwhile at least once a year to actually pull the prop off and look at all the bolts and then go back to retorque everything and just simply instead of just going back and just torquing without pulling something out. Well, Gary, one of my um, annual inspections is to retorque the prop hub where the, the hub attaches to the crankshaft. And so you have to pull the, the uh, propeller to do that, and that's a good time to do that. Yeah, not so on the Aerobees, though. Right, you just have the one big flange bolt with the uh, the Woodruff key, right? Yeah, uh, well, well, not for the prop, no. It just goes through the prop, the, the, the spinner and, and the flange. Um, but, you know, that's what I'm thinking is maybe it'd be worthwhile, at least at annual, to actually take the bolts all the way out of them, just actually pull the prop off all the way together. You know, I think we get some crushing, and, you know, these, these props are usually sealed, uh, but over the time, as they sit there and you keep retorquing them up, I think you end up damaging a lot of those seals. So it might be a good time back there to take a look at it, perhaps even put another little thin coat of sealant on there, uh, and then put the prop back on and do the bolting and do your prop tracking and all the usual things that you would typically do on the initial install. I don't like to pull my prop every year just to kind of save wear and tear, uh, but you probably ought to do it at some interval. And whether that's every year or every two years, it, it ought, you ought to decide on some interval and do that. And then likewise, you periodically ought to just throw it on a prop balancer and see that it's still in static balance. And you obviously can't do that with it on the airplane. And then probably the big thing for us is um, any kind of leading edge erosion or small nicks from rocks and stones that get picked up. Uh, I noticed that the paint on mine it holds up fairly well, but over time it will erode, and then you'll get into that sort of urethane leading edge protection. So um, I, at annual time, I give that a real good look to make sure that none of that is delaminating. And John, you had some issues with the, the Prince prop. What did you notice when you did that? Well, my, my first Prince prop had a, um, they had a bad batch of epoxy, and when it sat out in the sun and got hot, it bubbled up. Uh, but they took care of that with uh, replacing it, no problem. Um, other than that, the Prince has been holding up very well, especially in rain. Uh, but I do pick up nicks, and the way I deal with that is I just uh, kind of clean it up, uh, put a little dab of epoxy back onto those nicks, and then uh, wet sand them out. And uh, it seems to be doing pretty good. Yeah, that's one advantage the Prince, um, unlike the Sensenic where it's, a real thin composite coating, it's harder to repair. Yours, you know, you're you're dealing directly with the the, the material, the, the resin and the cloth. It's right on the surface, so easy to repair. Actually, I'm thinking of sending my prop back because it has enough nicks and uh, it's starting to look a little bit fatigued for a uh, complete uh, rebuild, which is um, it's going to cost me about three or $400, uh, but they'll completely refinish the, uh, the prop. For me, yeah, and I and I don't want to leave anybody with the um, the thought that I'm picking on Prince. Um, you know, I'm a, a fan of Prince props, and I plan to put one on mine. Uh, just simply that annual inspection time is a good chance to really lay eyes on and see if there's any problem spots before they really get bad on you. Well, the other thing with the the annual inspection is it can take you you know several weeks 
Um, and, and, and I think you need to choose a time that you're willing to take the plane down for service. And that's a good time to, if you're going to send it back to get refinished, you know, arrange with them, take it down at that time and send it back for three weeks. And, you know, you're not down from flying because it's do, you're doing other things with the aircraft. Yeah, bundle all your items into uh, one time period so you don't finish the annual and then decide you want to refit, redo the prop and you wait three more weeks. Right. And you're down for another six weeks because of delays. Also, I would mention that, you know, we didn't talk about timing, but um, when I had a certified plane in a, uh, in a leaseback program, timing your, your inspections was critical to keep your uh, revenue flowing. And if you could pick a time when you had bad weather, that was the time to do your annual. Because if you were going to be down for three weeks, even if uh, because of you know predicted weather, uh, that was a good time to get your annual done. Yeah, or uh, you know, don't do it at the in the middle of fly-in season where you're going to miss all the fun stuff because you're working on your airplane. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you're planning on going to Oshkosh, don't do it in your annual a week before Oshkosh. I, I keep progressively putting mine up. My I got my sort of my air within like in August, and every subsequent year I just kept bumping it up a month so I could get it right into the dead of winter. I'm, I'm in the December. Uh, time or actually january for now whichever one i want to do for this this year so again it does put it right more likely in a time where i'm not flying or at least not trying to get someplace anger though to get stuff done too so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword yeah that that's true i mean there are especially us in colorado in in january it unless you have a heated hangar it can be kind of tough in my colorado hangar uh, in January, my doors were frozen shut, so there was no maintenance going on. Yeah, That's right. Was, you borrowed my <laughs> hangar to, to put your plane in. <laughs> all right. So uh, n- next on my list is the engine, and I don't want to go through all the specifics, except you ought to have a methodical approach that starts with kind of a general engine compartment overview, where you look at the you look for any kind of exhaust staining or leakage or oil drips, and you kind of get a good sense of it. Then you start zeroing in on your bolts and fasteners on the outside. Um, is anything missing or loose? And you kind of progressively get more and more detailed to where you're looking at the exhaust gaskets and that make sure all the nuts and bolts are still there holding the exhaust together. And your plug wires are intact and not chafing. And you kind of just drill down from a broad overview to a very specific inspection of each part. And then, of course, work in your engine maintenance manual items into that inspection as well. Sure, the same general process you do for all the systems. You know, a step back, look at it a couple of feet away, and just keep getting closer, closer, and closer as you drill down. So on the Jabiru, one of the things that I like to look at is um, you pull the rocker arm, the rocker arm chamber covers off, and there's a lot you can learn on the Jabiru engine by what you find underneath that cover. If you have good oil flow, you'll see it when that cover comes off. If it's dry and kind of powdery, uh, or there's kind of a bronzy residue, you've got valve guide problems, or you've got blow gly and you're getting some, some carbon buildup in there, and maybe you're gonna stick a valve. If you see other issues like that, you may see that, like you might see some discolored material that could be something else that's kind of depositing in that chamber. And then lastly, that's where a lot of the head bolts, you have to remove those covers to get to some of your head bolts. And so you check all your head bolt torque and make sure that the the head material is not overheating. If it's overheating, the aluminum gets softer and you lose torque on your your head bolts. 
And so by simply doing that, you have access to a lot of really good indicators for the overall health of the engine. John, you've got 300 hours or more on your engine. Um, what do you find when you pull your rocker arm chamber covers? You know, when I, when I, you mean the, uh, the head cat or the, uh, the caps on top of the uh, rocker arms. Yes. You know, normally I just, I don't find anything unusual. It's just a little bit of, uh, you know, oil residue in there. I'm pulling those every 25 hours to adjust my valves anyway. So it's that, it, that becomes part of the annual inspection, but it's also part of my intermediate maintenance. And so I'm, I'm just looking for unusual, like, you know, I've never found anything unusual in them. Um, and it becomes very routine, which could be, I guess, dangerous because it's very routine. Well, that's good. You're, you're getting, you're getting a look down in there more often. Uh, on mine, because I don't have to adjust the valve clearance, there's really no reason to go poking around in there, mm. except specifically to go check and see what you find. Yeah, I mean, we're we're forced to go in there. It's like almost being forced to go change your oil. You just you do it at the same time, and right. uh, and so we get a little better, I think, uh, intermediate inspections than you guys with your fancy hydraulic lifters. Roller cam hydraulic lifters. That's true. Yeah, you got the really Double fancy, fancy ones. Double fancy. All right, Gary, uh, what were your favorite items to kind of keep tabs on in the engine compartment area during your annual? Uh, well, you know, we, yeah, you're still having to do the valves and all that kind of stuff and do your compression tests and see how things are going. Uh, the other thing I always kind of get concerned with, too, is, is when we start taking these plugs out of these aluminum cylinders, aluminum heads, I should say, uh, very easy for those things to get galled and, and to have real real thread problems, either getting them out or you, especially when you try to go back and put them back in, find that they can get cross-threaded very easily. Um, I know a lot of people end up, I actually went ahead and usually um, time-certed or helicoiled my heads uh, right as I, as I put them on because I know that's going to be a problem and it can still be a problem afterwards. Um, you know, as a maintenance item, I don't know how careful people are, but I actually use a piece of rubber tubing and stick my spark plug on that. And so that as I try to feed these things into these, these tight recesses, especially the bottom ones on these Aero-V heads, I can use that rubber. And if that plug is not completely nicely lined up, you can't put any significant torque on the plug to cross strip it, uh, which you can certainly do with easily by hand, even if you're using like an extension socket. Uh, but with a rubber or, or a piece of plastic tubing on top of the spark plug, uh, I think it really has saved me many times from, from stripping out these plug heads and, and causing some serious problems. Uh, the next kind of things we look for, well, that we shouldn't have much issues anymore. I was one of the original guys that tried using the Nicosil cylinders, and I was wondering why I could never keep my head bolts uh, torqued properly, and that was because of the, the cylinders were just too soft and they were mushrooming underneath the heads, but I don't think anybody's flying with those anymore. If they are, they really need to take a look at that because that's going to be a serious ongoing problem if they're not checking those torques on those heads and, and cylinders. Uh, the other typical things I would find with the AeroVs is uh, sometimes those uh, silicone boots that go from the intake to the intake manifolds, uh, the little T manifolds on top of our cylinders, uh, using those... Uh, you know, worm screw clamps or ideal clamps, whatever you want to call them. Uh, sometimes they tend to work themselves a little loose. So that's another one of those things that you can look at, and it certainly looks like it's tight because you can even see it kind of imprinting into the rubber 
and silicone, but, you know, go ahead and put your wrench back on there again and see if you can still snug them up some more. And just keep progressing along things like that, you know, checking where your EGTs go into your exhaust and, and making sure you still have a good seal there so you don't start worrying about a lot of carbon monoxide leaks. Um, you know, general oil leaks, we know that the VWs just kind of seem to ooze sometimes and, and leave a, a, a sweat trail uh, of oil. I never, I never could find out exactly where some of these things come from. But it was always just seemed like there's always a little bit of a fog in there. You'd have to wipe down things just to keep, keep and clear it up. Uh, but just general things along those ways, you know, the, the kind of standard things we do for all the engines. Yeah, it's, um, you think of why would that hose clamp work itself loose or why would that bolt, you know, vibrate loose? It, it shouldn't do that. But it seems to happen frequently. So just putting a wrench on things, making sure that things are still tightened up, uh, it's a good time to do it. And just, you know, it starts with kind of a healthy skepticism. Don't necessarily take it for granted. You know, maybe just put your hands on it and just go double check. Sure. Okay, um, moving into the electrical system, you know, half of it is on the firewall side, and the other half is really on the cabin side. The uh, the big thing on the firewall side is is always the alternator and regulator. So for me, it's making sure that there's no chafing or flexing in the alternator leads coming out of the back of the engine. Uh, if those things work themselves, they'll eventually break those contacts. Uh, worst case scenario, you're going to be replacing a a fairly expensive alternator stator coil in the back of your engine. So you want to make sure that there's no problems developing there. Make sure the connections, the the, the, the fast-on connections, or however you have it wired up, aren't arcing or burning or haven't gummed up with oil residue. You know, that fog like you're talking about, Gary, kind of gets in those joints. Yeah. So clean them out and, and re-lube them with dielectric grease. Make sure they have good contact and they're kind of sealed out from the elements. And then make sure that the rest of your wiring is not chafing anywhere. And chafing is something I've seen. You think you kind of got it all bundled up, and it takes a little while for those problems to kind of play out. Um, a zip tie that, that was doing okay for the first six months, but is now starting to fray an outer jacket or something like that. And we've heard the horror stories about zip ties cutting through motor mounts and things like that. I got that. That, that I'm sure does happen at times. But it's the more mundane stuff, like you bundled up a couple of spark plug leads to keep them away from the exhaust. And then before you realize it, you wore a hole through the outer jacket of your spark plug and you got to replace the whole thing. Stuff like that. Do you guys um, ever worry about grounding uh, cables, whether or not we should pull some of those off and, and maybe re-scuff up uh, the leads to the engine blocks where we ground these things out? I had not really done that. Uh, the times that I have removed a grounding cable, I haven't really noticed any significant corrosion or, or grime in there. But perhaps after a few years, that situation will change. It's not something that was on my list, though. Yeah, I haven't noticed it either. I mean, it's certainly not like the old days when we had the, you know, the vented batteries where you get all the, the green corrosion that just kind of spews out like a volcano around all your... Uh, your connectors to the batteries and so forth. But I was just wondering whether or not some of the, the electrical issues we might get might have to do with some uh, poor grounding. I know and we start talking about electrical, and this is going to go on a little bit further to antennas, uh, we're starting to get some uh, interference on in our radios, just some noise that wasn't there before would be kind of sporadic. And I did notice that when I went back to where the screws actually attached the antennas, 
and where they therefore ground the antenna to the, to the, to the airframe, even by just retightening those things up or twisting those screws a little bit, uh, many times that noise would go away for a period of time, and I was beginning to think that perhaps I was starting to lose some of my ground contact uh, due to some surface oxidation. On, on antennas specifically, I've noticed that exact thing as well. Um, you seem to just get a little bit of, of corrosion between the surfaces, and you start hearing a little bit of scratchy radio perception or maybe a little bit of popping or something like that. Yeah. And cleaning up that antenna base seems to make it go away. It does, and it lasts for a while. But I wonder if we get a little bit of oxidation underneath our, our main leads, too, that, if that could cause us any problems in the long run. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary, you, you mentioned to me uh, many years ago that uh, you wanted to avoid maintenance-induced failure. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if it's starting to take apart things that uh, are not a problem. Um, are you introducing a problem? Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, a, a grounding lead is a, is a fairly innocuous thing. I mean, I haven't done it, Riff. I was just starting to think about my antennas and just wondering if some of that might also be uh, affecting some of our noises and so forth we get uh, through our system as well, because many of us, you know, have the engine grounded to the either to the firewall or to the battery. And, of course, you know, all of our electronics go to the same spot as well. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be talking, I'm not talking about, like, you know, pulling cylinders and heads all the time. It would just be a matter of just scuffing up, a, you know, a, a lead underneath a bolt. Yeah. Yeah, probably worth checking periodically. Again, maybe not every year, but maybe on some interval that you kind of settle on. You, you talk about maintenance-induced failures, though. And that's something that's constantly on my mind. If I'm working on something, it's real easy to overlook something when you're putting it all together or to cause damage while you're doing that. And I'm thinking to a buddy of mine who was working on the engine and disconnected the ground strap to the engine, put everything back together, went to go start the engine, and did not have that strap reconnected. And so it tried to complete the circuit through whatever ground was available, which happened to be through one of his avionics. And it tried to pull starting current through his avionics ground and burn out the, I forget what it was, it was an MGL something or other. Um, you think, oh, that shouldn't happen, but yet, in this case, it did. <laughs> so, yeah, and so he had a $900 replacement, you know, to fix this thing. Yeah, it's funny how things happen sometimes. So, yeah, just being really vigilant, if you're working on something, do whatever it takes. Make yourself notes or leave yourself reminders or stick a piece of blue painter tape on something to remind you to finish the job, something like that, to make sure that you don't cause problems when you're trying to do the right thing and work on something. Okay, um, moving on, um, fuel system. So there's a lot of things that are exposed to a pretty harsh environment in the fuel system. And uh, th there's a bunch of things that, that probably uh, should be on your checklist and Gary, you talked about carrying an extra fuel cap for the thermos bottle style caps. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of those things that it, it, it's fine up until it just seems to fall apart on you. It's like, where did that come from? Yeah, no, there's no, there's no predicting. You can't even look at it every time you put on. You can't even see any indication it's, it's going to fail imminently, but it, it does on mine. So, so I, I give that a real good look. And then the other area, notoriously, is any kind of leaks or, or weeping fittings underneath the panel. So you got to periodically crawl in there and see if there's evidence that one of those fittings is starting to weep on you. Because if it is, 
Uh, it's only going to get worse, and it's probably going to happen fairly quickly. John, I think you made the comment one time, you know, opening the canopy, that's how you know it's a Sonics, because you just get that whiff of gas in the cockpit. Well, yeah, that's it's kind of uh, because the fuel is stored there, and those uh, stupid molded-in fittings are uh, notorious for weeping. Um, yeah, you know you're, you have a Sonics when you open the canopy and you smell gas. But, yeah, you're right. you got to, especially if you're using uh, 100 low lead, it's blue-tinted. And you'll see a stain, you know, coming from those fittings. The the trick, though, is if you got that stain, do you try to deal with it or do you just go buy the oops fitting and replace it? And the oops fittings are not perfect either. Yeah, that's right. It's it's almost like there's no good option until it, it it's painfully obvious that you just got to replace it. Uh, you don't want to go down that road if you don't have to, but um, you may end up fighting a, a leak that you just can't seem to make go away until eventually you give up and drill it out and put the oops in. Well, and I guess the uh, the new Sonics uh, fuel tanks don't even come with fittings. They just give you the oops fittings and you put them in from the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, if it's not there, it can't fail. So that's a that's a really good thing. Yeah, rotomotor tanks are great unless you need to have fuel draining from the bottom of it. Right. <laughs> Okay, um, what other areas uh, do you like to keep tabs on? One of the things I like to look for is um, I have an inline billet fuel filter from JEGS rather than a gas collator screen. So you can't easily pull the screen. Um, it's not as easy as the, the gas collator was where you can just drop the bowl and, and get a quick look at it. So I make sure to, to really do a detailed inspection, pull that filter out, disassemble it, you know, capture anything that might be stored on the screen inside and try to get a sense of how clean is this whole system. And so it's, to me, it's real inspiring when you open it up and there's nothing in there. Or maybe there's one little fleck of, you know, plastic from the fuel tank that's been slowly making its way through the system for the last three or four years. But uh, that's an area that it definitely uh, can give you a sense of whether you're having problems. You know, if you have fuel lines that are starting to kind of chemically degrade and you get that black sort of powdery rubber dust that gets everywhere, that'll show up in your in your bowl or your filter. Uh, you, you want to make sure you give yourself an opportunity to find those problems before they hit your car and cause you to stumble or fail in flight. Or just sand and dirt. That would be typically what I... I had the same kind of filter on that uh, copper screen. and Most of my stuff would just be actually just, you know, more like dirt kind of stuff that you'd have to take out. But it's never fun because you really got to crawl up underneath the cockpit, which we all know is no fun in the Sonics. Okay, uh, fuselage is, is kind of self-explanatory. You're obviously looking at the outside for any sort of damage to the skins or, or loose bolts or structural members that might need some attention. But there's more really inside that is hard to see that you ought to lay your eyes on, such as, you know, get back there to the rear spar carry-through and make sure that none of that stuff is shifted around where it's not loosening some rivets in, in those brackets or the nut has, you know, fallen off or something like that. You can't see that area unless you specifically go back there and look at it. So you ought to take the time to put your hands on it and, and really inspect it. And then the other one for me is um, the elevator pushrod support braces. There's one right behind the baggage compartment and another one closer to the tail. And neither one of those are real convenient to get to. And so you, you'll hear somebody and they'll move their elevator and you kind of get the moose horn, 
you know, honk going as the thing is sliding through the snap bushing. Um, so you, you really need to get back there and, and clean it up and then re-lube it to keep that thing from chattering on you. Those are kind of two of my areas that I, I specifically like to, to look at. Yeah, I think it kind of goes along with all the control surfaces. You know, we're, we still need to continue to check for slop. Um, you know, in mine, there was always a little bit of stuff in, in some of them. But, you know, in flight, all that stuff seals up and you, you can never feel it. Uh, but go back and look and check to make sure all your uh, cotter pins are still in your cat slate and nuts and all that kind of stuff. And make sure, again, they're not reaming out. You know, we had a lot of bushings that we had to put in there. So we still want to make sure that nothing's getting elongated. Uh, if you need to lube those things up, that's fine. Usually didn't take very much for me. Just a little bit of lightweight oil would take care of that. Like even a three-in-one or something or some LPS uh, number one uh, would take care of all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I really didn't have a lot of problems with the, with the linkage, linkages. Uh, probably one area that might be some is is where we did those aileron bell cranks out on the wings. Uh, I always thought there was a potential for those things to start having more trouble. I personally had not had anything, you know, where I felt like they were getting more sloppy or anything along those lines. I don't know if anybody else has, though. Yeah, it's something I keep an eye on, and I haven't noticed anything yet. You know, one of the things I did um, after it was flying was the difficulty of getting back to that rear elevator pushrod support. Uh, I just put an additional access hole in the bottom skin and put a, a regular four-inch inspection cover on it. And that way I can get my hand up there and I can clean that snap bushing and, and the elevator pushrod itself and re-lube it. And it also makes a, another good spot to be able to shine a light back into the tail cone area and see it from the forward side. Those two access panels that are back there are, one is directly underneath the leading edge, and the other one is back by the where the bell crank or the elevator push rod attaches to the elevator bell crank. So those are good to see those particular areas, but having a, another access point kind of in front where you can look back and see it proved to be pretty beneficial as well. So that might be a modification that that is uh, useful to others as well. Yeah, I'm a real fan of access plates. In my latest build, I put in a lot more stuff. Uh, just because of prior experience, you're right, you know, once you get things together, it's hard to get back in there. So, yeah, inspection plates are easy to put in and nothing to be afraid of. I know a lot of people get kind of nervous about cutting a hole in their skin, but, you know, just take your, you know, chainsaw and go for it. It works out pretty easy. Yeah, and the, the usual disclaimers here, you know, you got to be smart about how you do stuff. You know, don't go cutting into a big, thick, beefy member because that's a perfect spot for an access hole. But something like a bottom wing skin or the bottom skin of the fuselage, those things are so lightly loaded that if you do a normal kind of best practice inspection panel, it's going to be fine. Yeah. And so, and if you have any concerns, call Carrie up and he'll set you straight. Yeah, we're not talking about putting, you know, holes in the, in the leading edge of the root of the wings. I remember there was a, a discussion on the Sonics Builder list. Somebody had said, oh, I want to make my entire belly skin removable. So I can easily take the whole thing down, and I'm thinking, man, this—that's a hundred nut plates in there. That's oh, a, it's that's a, a lot huge more than that. I just put more <laughs> seventy nut plates in each wing tank cover of mine uh, for the for the fuel tank. I mean, that'd it, be a tremendous number of nut plates. Yeah, you can do ninety percent of what you need to out of a few well placed access panels. Then you don't need to make major modifications to do something like that. All right, um, landing gear. Landing gear is another one of those areas that we have some known issues that we want to keep tabs on. 
for example, we did the whole show on the landing gear where the upper bolt that holds the gear leg to the motor mount, you know, that one has a, a history of having some issues under the right circumstances. And then the lower one that holds the, the gear leg to the actual socket, the, the axle socket, that one can have some issues. So John, what do you do with your various bolts in your landing gear system? Well, since I did break my upper bolt and had an issue with it rotating the uh, the landing gear, um, since then it's become, I just replace them on annuals. So, I mean, they're a dollar a piece. Um, I keep stock of six of them. Um, and so when the annual comes, that's just one of the things I replace is pull the bolt out, inspect it to see if there's any any uh, fretting due to some burr. If there is, I'll deal with the burr, but um, I just replace them now because it's a critical component and it's cheap to replace. And it, it'll, um, you know, you ruin your day to have your landing gear rotate on the runway. I pulled mine out this past annual and I had about 300 hours on it. And I got to thinking, you know, there's really nothing wrong with that. It, it, I'm sure it's fine. And the more I thought about that answer, I thought, you know, I don't really know it's fine. I'm hoping it's fine. I'm just going to spend the 15 minutes to pull that thing out and get a good look at it. And then once you have it out, you might as well just throw a new one in and just call it good. Well, that's my so. point is, you know, my first one broke because there was fretting. I had a burr and it took 100 hours for that uh, burr to reach a point where it broke the bolt. And then, um, you know, since then, I've, I've reamed out that hole and, and took care of the burr. But, you know, it's just it's peace of mind. Just put a new bolt in. Right. And this is a good point to mention um, for those things that are consumables, uh, whether it's a new bolt here or the type of screw that you use on that inspection cover over there. Uh, I like to put those part numbers or those screw numbers or whatever right in the checklist. And that way it makes it really easy to kind of stock up on all those those expendable items when you're getting ready for your annual. You can kind of run down and make your shopping list. I need these type of lubricants. I need these. This is the brand of, of uh, spark plugs and filters that I'm going to need, and these are the bolts I'm going to change, and kind of just build that that supplies list right from your checklist. Well, our craft spruce makes that really easy by just having them always in your shopping cart. Right. <laughs> yeah, the wish list, yeah. All right, what else uh, do we need to be looking at in the landing gear system? John, with your Tracy O'Brien brakes, uh, what are your hot spots you keep an eye on? Actually, I don't have the, uh, the lower um, bolt issue that the uh, the sonic socket has the sonic uh, lower uh, axle socket because the tracy o'brien is all welded in um so the only issue i really have is to uh, you know check the uh the i also have tracy o'brien brakes and so i i check the uh you know the linings of the brake pads to make sure i have plenty and it's not uh you know, I, I keep an extra set around just in case Tracy O'Brien decides to go retire and not produce his brakes anymore. Um, and then, you know, it, as far as the lower landing gear, you know, it's all axles, it's bearings and, and brake pads. Okay. Gary, how about you? What, what did you keep an eye on? Uh, there's a couple of things I've noticed uh, kind of related to the landing gear is where our fairings uh, attach. Uh, both at the top and the bottom, but top, you know, it goes through the bottom of the fuselage. You know, I originally did mine uh, according to plans, 
where you use the pin, although I didn't use the one long pin, I divided that and shoved one up and then shoved one down from the trailing edge of the fairing. Uh, but I noticed that the uh, upper edge where it goes through the fuselage floor, it is elongating out there, so I'm going to need to do something with that. Uh, I know there's some additional ways we can do that with, with tabs and, and fabricate a little bit differently in mechanism, but... That's one spot that's starting to open up a little bit. More of an annoyance than really any real structural damage to it. Uh, the other thing is the tailwheel, um, where the bushing attaches uh, for the pivot plate uh, on, on the rudder to the, uh, the, the horn that, that pushes. Yeah, and you're talking about the, the link rod that yeah, goes from the, link rod, the yeah. drive horn to the actual yeah, tailwheel. Yeah, you start to get some wearing uh, on both of those edges, so I think I'm probably going to have to uh, take those out. May have to open them up a little bit more. Maybe stuff some bronze bushings in there and use those as replaceable items. But you know that's right. after about 700 hours or 700 landings. So, and really in retrospect, not too bad. But I know it's starting to get a little loose. Yeah, and you could you could resleeve that um, a number of times before you really ran into problems. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. But you definitely want to notice when it's time to address it. Yeah, and those bushings would be pretty easy to push in and out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had to resleeve mine with a stainless steel sleeve, and um, and that worked pretty well. Uh, one of the things I look for, you know, I have the standard Sonics axle, but because I put the the Great Plains brake on there, I did not want to overstress that single attachment tab where the brake attaches to the axle itself. So I welded on two additional hold down tabs, and so I look and make sure that those welds are not cracked or getting ready to fail. Uh, make sure that the bolt hole that holds the, the socket to the gear leg has not elongated the wall thickness of the socket, and so it's wobbling around. Make sure that's all good. And then as far as the brakes themselves, just make sure that because it's a, a dual puck system on the, on the uh, Great Plains brakes, it rides fairly close on both sides. So if one side starts to get a little bit worn, um, you got to kind of balance it out, and so you may have to move around the pads or change one, so you're not—I um, don't know—you're not getting them out of balance. I found that um, the pads themselves seem to hold up really well. Uh, there's very little wear after 300 hours, and seems to be doing well. So I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, I've never noticed any real wear on my uh, little pucks either with the Aero V brakes. All right, so uh, moving back to the tail. Um, we talked about the tail wheel and uh, the link rod and all that. One of the things I'll just point out is if you have a, a non-stock link rod, uh, such as like what Bob Micah described making, where he had an aluminum rod that was that was tapped and he had some threaded ends that went in there, or you do like what I did, which is a piece of chromoly tubing with some some threaded uh, bolts that are that are welded in place. You just got to make sure that thing doesn't fall apart on you. If you have a weld that's gone bad or you have a stress riser in the threads and it breaks it off flush where it comes out of the, the rod, you know, you're going to lose your steering probably at the worst possible time on, on landing rollout and it'll break and send you off into the weeds. And as we found uh, at Camp Sonics at Oshkosh, uh, that can ruin your whole Oshkosh trip if it sends you off into the, into the ditch. I've had, uh, you know, in my uh, push rod or the, whatever you call it, the, the connecting rod between the rudder and the tailwheel. I've seen it after a couple of harsh landings uh, bend where I didn't want it to bend. Uh, 
and it wasn't during an annual inspection, but it was during normal maintenance to just replace that with a, a little more beefed up rod, but it's definitely something to look at. So the last thing around the empennage that it's kind of on my list to check is the trim cable. So obviously if you have YX, like, like on John and yours, you don't have the trim tab on the tail surface, but on a standard Sonics with the standard plans trim lever, there's that little tab that flies on the backside of the elevator, and there's a, a Bowden cable that just actuates that. Well, that is exposed to the elements. It's back there by the by the ground, so any kind of moisture that you kick up on a, on a grass runway or something like that can deposit itself on that Bowden cable and start to corrode it. And so that's an area that, that I keep close tabs on. It just has a Z-bend as it goes through the, the, the trim tab, and so it can degrade on you and you just got to keep tabs on that. I normally just kind of squirt it down with some lube, make sure that it's not uh, bone dry, and then uh, just inspect it for wear or any kind of kinking or, or stress crack that's starting in the, in the bend of the Z-bend. All right, so what else do we need to talk about? We kind of kind of moved through the systems. Um, what else is there? Well, you know, one of the things you got to, I think you need to check is um, on your avionics. Uh, you know, over the year, they could have released um, a new version of the software for it. So you need to make note of what version you have, go onto their website, see if there's an update, and uh, then evaluate whether you want to apply the update or not. And that includes your radio and your, your you know, all of your avionics, everything electronic. Yeah, that's also something I had on my list. Um, MGL, you know, they have frequent updates, not so much on the radio anymore, but when they were new, there were updates every few months. And then Dynon is constantly releasing updates. So you definitely don't want to miss out on a good update. It might fix a bug or just give you a new features that you never had before. Well, with the MGLs, that I have the extremes, and they haven't released an update to those in over two years. So I'm getting kind of complacent, but I do need to keep checking to see if there is something new um, that I want to make sure that not doesn't necessarily mean I want to upgrade it because if it's working fine, I'm not sure I want to. But introduce a new uh, feature, but um, you know I want to be aware of it. All right. Well, I guess my final thought is after all the work is done, I always just kind of pause and then uh, very slowly and deliberately go back and double check my work. Again, we talked about this before, but uh, maintenance induced failures. Anytime you got something open and apart. It's a good chance to leave a wrench in the tail cone or just forget to do something and, and you find out about it when you do that test flight or maybe down the road even. So I just take extra time to make sure I double check my work, make sure that I have completed all the tasks that I thought I actually completed, and then just button everything up properly. Well, you'll find that tool the next annual, won't you? Uh, yeah, it's better to find it at the next annual. Than to uh, find it when you're upside down, you know, coming out of a split S. All right, um, any Gary, any final advice on on uh, conducting the annual or getting organized or any of those topics? No, again, I think probably my bigger point is just actually put your paw on the item that you're looking at, and and make sure it does or doesn't do what you don't want it to do. Okay, John, final thought. No, I think Gary has a really good. Um, advice he's given me a lot of pointers on uh, on doing maintenance and um, you know just it, it actually becomes as enjoyable as building 
um, to go back through your what you built and see things that uh, you haven't looked at in a year. Yeah. And I guess my final thought is, you know, take your time and don't talk yourself out of doing maintenance and inspections. You think, oh, I don't really want to open it up and, and really go look at the ELT because it's so inconvenient to get to. I'll just skip that. I just won't do it. Don't let yourself kind of do that kind of stuff. Take the time. Don't put yourself under a time constraint where you really got to get it done. Um, do it properly. And, and don't let yourself kind of take the easy way out and, and justify skipping items. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll even go in and confess to that one, too. I've had those thoughts at times, too, and say, yeah, I don't really need to do that. And then, then eventually I'll drag myself back to do it. But it, it is easy to do and get, get into that mindset. Yeah, and that's where, you know, kind of the community can help with that. Um, you know, just bouncing around ideas with other people sometimes will help you recognize when you might be kind of going down that road. John, like the uh, with Robert Barber and his, and his prop, those bolts are not something that any of us were really tracking. Why would we need to check the prop bolts that hold the flange to the crank? Those don't need to be looked at. But now that we're kind of aware about it, it probably ought to be on our periodic maintenance. And so that's the type of thing where, you know, you don't want to necessarily ignore the experience we got the hard way and, uh, and justify not doing it because, oh, that was just a fluke. It'll never happen. Well, maybe, but take the opportunity. Just, just get in there and take a look and don't just write it off, you know, out of habit. Well, you bring up a good point about, you know, just those observations. You know, Robert lost his prop. Well, all of us should be going, do I need to check that? Um, you know, what was the root cause failure? What, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what, what can I do to prevent that? And I think it becomes part of your uh, annual maintenance. Yeah. I put it on my checklist um, at 500 hours. I'm going to replace uh, both the prop bolts that hold the prop to the crank. And I'm going to hold, replace the flywheel bolts. And, you know, they get checked periodically, but I'm going to replace them every 500 hours. Well, I'm coming up to 400, and I'm, I'm doing it this annual, so I'm doing the exact same yep. thing. Mm -hmm. Even though the yep. manufacturer doesn't require it, I'm just, you know, Robert had a problem. I'm going to just deal with it before it happens. Yeah. All right. Well, good deal. Hey, uh, we got some feedback on episode 27. Uh, 27, we talked about Sonic's handling qualities. So got an email from uh, Dave Misner. And he asked about the differences between a tail dragger and a tri-gear when it comes to handling characteristics. And that was something we didn't really talk a lot specifically. Probably because in flight, there really aren't a lot of differences in how a tri-gear or a tail dragger sonics fly. So, John, you flew both. I mean, your airplane was a tri-gear, and then you converted to tail dragger. Why don't you tell us what your impressions of the differences were? Um, in the air... Uh, there's very, I mean, I don't know if you can even tell there's a difference. Um, the biggest thing was I had the Jabiru tri-gear, which is a little bit of an oddball uh, character because it, the nose gear is offset by about six inches to the left. And not only does it look kind of goofy, but it also didn't track well on the ground, I didn't think. Um, it felt like you just had a, an odd-shaped uh, stool you were sitting on. Um, you know, the, the legs weren't evenly displaced. Um, as far as ground handling, the Tri-Gear Sonics is absolutely predictable. Um, 
it's way too easy to land. Uh, it was not much of a challenge at all. And if you want, you know, a really well handled aircraft, then the Trigear is perfect. Uh, when I switched over to the tail dragger, I found the tail dragger a little bit more challenging, but not much. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's still a, you know, a very tame as far as tail draggers go. I've flown about three or four different tail draggers. Um, definitely the most docile, uh, but in the air, the handling is almost identical. I, I, I really can't tell much of a difference. I guess the weight distribution is a little different, and maybe the stall characteristics, but I didn't see anything. And maybe two We're, miles an hour difference on speed. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't feel vibration in the in the rudder pedals, you know, from that nose wheel. I did put, you know, the nose fairing on and all that. So, yeah, it didn't, it didn't operate any differently in the air. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're driving it around on the ground, you know, with the tail dragger, if you're trying to make a runway turn off and, and you still have a little bit of speed, uh, you got to be careful, like with any tail dragger, you got to be careful that you don't go into that turn too quickly. Otherwise, uh, especially if there's a little bit of a quartering tailwind, it can kind of spin you around and uh, you, you kind of lose grip on the tailwheel to the runway surface. What did you find in, in sort of higher speed ground handling when you're taxing? In the tri-gear. Um, you know, I actually, I thought the, I thought the tri-gear, the way the, the nose gear attaches the engine mount, it was a bit wobbly and it didn't feel as, you know, solid as like a Cessna 150 or, uh, you know, a 172. Um, but I never had a feeling that I could ground loop it or, uh, have any problem on taxing, even high speed taxing around it. Uh, it was very well behaved. But like I say, it was a little bit wobbly. It, it just didn't feel as stable as, uh, you know, a certified aircraft on the nose gear. Would, you know, the thing I would think probably, it depends on what the environment he's flying. If he's in a state like Oklahoma or Kansas where he gets a lot of wind, uh, these, these tailwheel planes are very, very lightly loaded back there. That's why you see people just grab and pick these things up and walk them around like a puppy dog. It's only like, you know, what, 30 pounds of 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 weight back there, it feels like when you lift it up. So I used to get quite a bit of skidding uh, if I had any kind of significant crosswind. You could just you could just hear it go across the runway, even though you're putting in full deflection of the of the uh, rudder. So if you're probably really dealing with a with a high wind environment all the time, I would I would imagine the tri gear would be a much better option for you since you got so much more weight from the engine uh, planting that nose wheel. Gary, you make a good point. Um, our latest trip to Reclaw. On the way back, we were landing in Oklahoma, and uh, really good crosswind, gusty, and it's the first time that I almost ground looped my Sonics, but I think it was because of my breakaway tailwheel. I landed, you know, in a quartering crosswind. It was, you know, I got it down. As soon as I turned on the taxiway, the wind gust took me, and the tailwheel broke to where it would free caster. And I was into the tr- I was into the grass. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there are times when you got those kind of tailwheels that if you get enough wind, you, you can't even taxi. Uh, even if you're trying to, you know, drag a full force one one wheel brake and full power. Um, there were days that I tried to get my maul out because it was a free casting tailwheel too. I just had to stop and put it back and you know just walk <laughs> it back to the hangar. It just wouldn't do it. Well, I do have differential brakes, and uh, what I just did was I. You know, continued the 360 degree turn that it had turned me, 
got back on the taxiway and then uh, differential braked all the way back to the, the fuel dock. But it was the first time that I've actually had a, the tailwheel brake on me and, and I was out of control. Yeah. Well, I've had twice I landed up here at uh, Metro Airport with enough winds that, uh, as you know, it might have been coming pretty much down the runway, but as soon as I tried to make that turn too, uh, it would actually just shove my tail all the way back into the wind. And of course, mine's a, a direct steering tailwheel, it's not breakaway. And the tower would sometimes call up and say, you want us to send somebody out there to walk you in? <laughs> uh, literally, I mean, th these planes are very lightly loaded. and People need to realize that there can be a significant difference flying these light sport aircraft versus some of the heavier certified stuff. You may not necessarily get away with it, even with the winds that you are used to, to flying before, just because they just don't weigh enough. I mean, it just and Gary, makes a difference. There's another aspect. And it's not just the amount of, of, you know, tail weight when you're taxiing. When you put a significant amount of wind over the tail, it starts making lift, and it'll lift the tail right off the ground even more. So you, you kind of forget about that. You think, I'm only driving five miles an hour over the ground, but your tail is seeing 30 miles an hour of wind, and so it's ready to fly. Sure. Yeah, and you got a positive angle attack with these tailwinds, too, these tail draggers. And, was yeah, that, was that the that. reason for your landing at uh, Reclaw? No, there's a very scientific reason that has nothing to do with tailwheels. <laughs> it has to do with operator headspace and timing. Well, that's one thing I'd like to say, too, is, you know, the rec law fly-in, it's a pretty rough, uh, I think it's a pretty rough uh, grass strip that we were landing in. I don't know if I'd really like to have landed my Tri-Gear Sonics in there um, because of the, the wobbliness and I think the perceived weakness of that, the nose wheel. I'm sure you could do it, but if you if you plopped it in like some of those guys did with those uh, Cessnas, um, you might end up collapsing that front gear. Yeah, it, it is a little bit spindly, and if you treat it well, it'll be fine, but um, it may not just soak up the abuse like the, the tail dragger version will. Uh, at the last uh, Midwest fly-in, Sonic's fly-in, Ray Curian flew his tri-gear over from uh, Kansas City. And it was getting quite windy, and watching him take off and land uh, at Gardner on that on the runway with the crosswind, um, that thing was tracking beautifully. I mean, it really made that crosswind easy. But uh, then again, he says, you know, hey, I've had some issues where I wouldn't get off on a really rough runway. So you kind of got to pick and choose what mission you're trying to build your airplane for. Yeah, if you're if you're planning on doing a lot of off piste, day, I would go with the tail dragger. If you're in a predominantly heavy crosswind environment on pavement, the, the tri-gear will be fine. And it'll probably serve you really well. Okay, and the last point that I want to make is um, the sight picture and the deck angle in the tri-gear is quite a bit different than the tailwheel. So in the flare, that you know, you're going to flare at the same attitude and all that. It's going to set down. But once that nose comes down, it... The, the tri-gear sits at a very flat angle, so there's a bit of a transition from kind of a tail-low three-point attitude to lowering the nose gear. And then likewise on takeoff, you're, you're accelerating down the runway in a very flat attitude, and you have to deliberately kind of pull back and rotate the airplane as we're on the, tr the tailwheel. You can just sort of put the stick in a kind of a neutral position. It'll fly off when it's ready. Yeah, you, you definitely have to, uh, on the tri-gear... Um, well, I suppose if, if you got it going fast enough, it'll just going to take off, but, um, 
you know, if you're at the 50 mile an hour, 55 mile an hour rotation, you pull it back, it'll take off and, and fly. Otherwise, it's going to continue down the runway until about 65, and then it'll finally get enough lift and, and, and pull itself off in a tri-gear uh, attitude. But that's the way a Cessna is, too. Yeah. All right, so I think that's about it on uh, handling differences. The bottom line is there are really not a lot of difference, but there are a few minor differences, and, and you might want to just consider those when you're trying to decide which one is best for you. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for running through this topic on annual inspections. Uh, I think it's timely. Uh, I was just kind of thinking to myself that uh, fall time has got to be when the maintenance season really starts because uh, you don't want to you don't want to do it in the good flying weather. Uh, you don't want to do it necessarily in the dead of winter when it's so cold you can't get into the hangar. Uh, and likewise, you know you want to be done by the time the good weather in spring comes up. So I think this is a good time to get out there and and do your annual. And if you just did one in August, um, well, maybe this is not a chance to do it, you know, because maybe this is not quite long enough. But if you're a spring annual, there's nothing to say that you don't have to wait until next spring. You can do it now. And like you said, John, just, just do it at less than annual intervals. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah, especially if you got a long weekend and you're alone and you're bored and you want to hang around airplanes. I mean, and you got a nice weather weekend, go do it. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Um, for everyone else, you can visit us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 29. Uh, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Google Play uh, or whatever your favorite podcast app is on your phone. And uh, Or you can listen to it directly off the website, for that matter. If you have something on your mind or you want some additional topics to, to hit our queue or you have some feedback on an episode, send us an email. You can get to the link on email by going to our website, or you can send it to feedback at sonicsflight.com. If you do have a thought or a suggestion, uh, reach out to us, because I think we found that talking to builders all over, everyone has something unique to contribute, some experience, some idea, and just getting those thoughts and ideas out into the community, that's really the key to kind of building our collective knowledge base and, and sharing those experiences. So... So don't just uh, sit back and listen to the podcast and, and listen to the discussion. Uh, get involved and, and contribute your experiences, too. I think next time we're going to have a pretty good show. We're, we're going to do the Subsonic Show as our next podcast with John Corneal. And for those of you who don't know John, he brought his Subsonics to Oshkosh this past year and got a bronze Lindy. And it's a beautiful airplane. So he's going to talk to us about building it and basically what it's like to be a regular guy flying a jet. So he is not a former military, you know, superhero type guy. He's just a regular old guy, and he's just, he's just going after it. So that's going to be a really great episode. So uh, join us for episode 30 when we do that. And for everybody else, uh, get out there and dig into your maintenance. John, Gary, good to talk to you guys as always, and look forward to talking to you again next week. You too, guys. Yep, thanks. All right, fly safely. We'll talk to you later. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slack podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.